Mark, or excuse me, not Mark. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I say 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but we'll be actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul has explained, remember this letter, this whole letter, is Paul's wearing his heart on his sleeve. He explaining, he's explaining why he does what he does because they basically said, hey, we don't believe that Paul's actually an apostle. We believe he actually might be someone that's not called to be an apostle, but he's telling everybody what to do. And there were people that followed behind Paul and went to every church that he went to and started causing division in the churches that he planted. Think about it. It's like the parable of the seed where God sows, you know, the, the, the man goes out, the farmer, he goes out and sows good seed and then one of his enemies or his neighbors comes in and he sows a bunch of bad seed in there and then the seed kind of grows up. And that's what Satan's always trying to do. He's trying to find the work of God and try to put it asunder by mixing it in with all kinds of other ideas, all kinds of other seed, if you will. And so the harvest is proved by what grows up from that seed. But remember what Jesus said. He said, don't, don't just yank out all the, all the bad stuff because sometimes you'll yank out the bad stuff and yank up the good uh, seed that's been sown. And so um, Paul is not so much going in there and ripping things out of the ground, but he's explaining to them why he does what he does. And he's explaining to them the reason and the motivation for why he does ministry. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he explained to them and he reminded them that we as cracked vessels, as broken people, have the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ poured into us by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, no matter what we go through in this life, whether it's joy or sorrow or pain or success or brokenness or healing, all of those things as Christians with the gospel, with Jesus Christ in us by the Holy Spirit, when those things happen in our lives, the glory of God pours forth from our pores. It's what we're made of. It's what comes out when we're cracked, when we're broken. But he explained to them also that that doesn't mean that things will be easy. He says there in verse um, 8 of chapter 4, he says, we as cracked vessels, as as earthen vessels were made from dust just like a clay pot he says in verse 8 we're hard pressed on every side yet because we have the glory of god in us we're not crushed we need to make that distinction because many people say well what doesn't kill me will make me stronger well i saw on facebook one day it said what doesn't kill me will make me stronger uh, except bears they'll kill you you know <laughs> Uh, but what they were saying is, hey, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So if you go through adversity, you're going to be stronger in life. But without Jesus, those adversities can kill you. They can afflict you. They can bring you down. You've got no hope if what you trust in is taken away. But if everything in your life is taken away, everything, every relationship, every job, every whatever it might be that you put most of your trust in, and we have those hidden idols, if those are taken away from us, and we still have Jesus who cannot be taken away from us, then our hope doesn't disappoint. That's what Romans 5 says. Because our, the love of God has been shed abroad. It's been poured over our lives. And so no matter what, we're anchored. Nothing can move us. And so Paul says here, we're hard-pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not left alone or forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Now think about it. If you've got a clay vessel, a clay pot, 
and it's pressed in upon, what does it do? It shatters. But not when it's filled with the glory of God. If it's cast down onto the ground, no matter what hardness the ground is, a clay pot breaks if you throw it down. And so what he's saying is, if you're filled with the Lord and you're cast down, you won't be destroyed because Jesus Christ lives within you. And even the worst thing that could happen to you, death itself will not put you under because Jesus has been risen from the dead. And in the same way, we in the same way will be risen from the dead, even if we are killed by whatever ails us in this life. He says there, in verse um, 13, he says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, he says, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing this. Knowing this. He says, he doesn't say, notice he doesn't say believing this. He says, knowing this. There are certain things about this faith that we've been given in Jesus that I think sometimes people, um, they mystify too much. There are facts that God has told us in his word that we need to know. That's why we always say, hey, read the word of God. God's told you about himself. It would do you justice. It would behoove you to take those facts, put them into your head, and let you start believing them. But also, in the moments where you kind of, you're doubting in some way or another, remember that these are facts. These are very things that people that have gone before us in the faith have rested their trust in and their hope didn't disappoint them. They kept going. They put them to the test. Sorry. Knowing this, verse 14, that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. Now he's talking about himself there. He says we put our faith in the fact that the, the one who raised up Jesus is also going to raise us up, talking about Paul and his cohorts. But also he says this, and will present us with you. Not only we as apostles and sent ones and missionaries and servants into the church of God right now will be raised up with Jesus, will be raised up with Jesus with you. He points at himself, but then he says, you guys are also partakers of this same promise. So, in light of that truth, knowing that, he says this, verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart. We don't get discouraged is the idea. What does it take to discourage you in your faith? What does it take? Does it take someone uh, mocking you or telling you you're foolish? Does it take a physical ailment? You know, I got to tell you, when I am the most stretched in my faith, it's when I go through physical ailment. Because you can knock me down, you can mouth me, I don't mind that. You know, I get that at home, you know. <laughs> no, I don't. My wife loves me. She does a great job. And she does mouth. And it's good for me because I need that. I need to be humbled. But the reality is that when I get physical ailment, that is my Achilles heel, physically and spiritually. Physical ailment. When I have the flu, I pray more at the porcelain than I do anywhere else. Because I'm like, Lord, take this thing from me. I am sick and I can't take this. I know you love me, but I'm not feeling it right now. I'm expressing doubt, worry, overwhelmed. And the Lord always in those moments is desiring to meet with me. Now he desires to meet with me when I'm not in ailments, but it's like he shouts at us in our pains and our sorrows and he whispers when everything's going good. Well, it's not that he's speaking in any different volume. It's that I'm listening differently. 
And so in the same way, Paul says, we don't lose heart because we know these things. We have put our faith in these things. Even though our outward man is perishing, he says, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, notice he describes his affliction. It's momentary and it's light. Now, in the context of Paul, we think of light affliction. We think, I got a boo-boo, I tripped, I'd stub my toe. That's light affliction, right? Well, Paul is expressing this from a place of he's been stoned. Many people thought he was stoned so badly that they drug him out of town. They left him. They thought he was dead. And then he got back up by the power of God, walked back into town and and kept preaching. (laughs) So Paul's saying this affliction that we experience in this life, it's, it's momentary. Well, how can he have that perspective? Well, because he knows what affliction he really deserves. Paul was persecuting Christians. He was coveting. He was murdering, consenting to it. He had murder in his heart. And so Paul goes, my sins that I committed in the past, I deserve to be judged eternally for them. I deserve to be separated from God. The thing that Jesus did for me when he took my penalty for my sin on the cross, I deserved it. So anything I experience in this life that's not punishment for my sin, I really deserve more. So in light of that, this is really light affliction. I've heard this story. I've seen people that watched him be crucified. It was excruciating. And the word cross is got a base word in it, and I won't go into the Greek because, I, frankly, I don't know it. I didn't study this part. I just thought of it. The word excruciating came from being killed on a cross. It was directly related to that death penalty. And so the excruciating death that Jesus took on the cross is what I deserved. He took it for me. We like to say that God so loved the world because it's a Bible verse and it's true, but you got to make it more personal sometimes and go, God so loved me. He gave his only begotten son that if I would believe in him, I wouldn't perish but he would give me freely to me, not to him. It wasn't free for him to me, for me to have everlasting life. But he would give it to me freely, free of charge. I don't have to do anything but believe in it. Believe in him, the one who came to save my soul. Verse 17 of John chapter 3 says, For God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world they might be saved. And so Paul is expressing this. He says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are transient, or the word is temporary in some of the translations, but the things which are not seen are eternal. They last forever. Temporary, eternal. That's that's the difference between, now, what do we spend 99.99% of the time on? I'll speak for myself, not for you. We spend it on what we can see. We, uh, think about it, this morning you got up, you looked in the mirror and you were like, I got to deal with the things that are seen, right? (laughs) I got to deal with the things that are seen. I got to wipe the thing that, you know, and, and, but what God says through Paul here is, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but we look at the things which are not seen. Because if in the middle of a trial, whether it's someone that has a, a death, ills, and illness, or whether we see ourselves get injured, 
I'm talking about my physical affliction that I struggle with. If I focus in on the thing that I'm being destroyed in some way or cracked or messed up or I get a blemish or a relationship isn't right, if I look at that thing that is seen and I'm focused on it rather than eternal things, then I lose perspective. But he says, the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And we are much more apt, and Paul was the same way, to deal with the external rather than the internal. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks where? He looks at the heart. And so let's look at this, because this takes faith to deal with the things that are not seen versus the things that are seen. Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, this is just called faith. What is faith? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says this, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And then he says this, By faith we understand, this is the word to me, to understand something with your mind, that the worlds were framed by the word of God. That the world around us, the things that we see with our physical eye, were framed by the word of God, something that we can't see but we can hear. And so the, the, the worlds were framed by the word of God so that, which the, uh, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. We like to think of God as someone that works with Play-Doh and makes something out of it. He took the elements, all the things that already existed, and he made the earth. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. What the Bible teaches us is that the worlds were framed by the words of God. There was nothing, and then there was everything, because God, the axiom, the impetus, he spoke. When God spoke, it was creation. He created. Now, when you and I, we say, well, I created this playhouse, or I, you know, we, we don't create anything. We only take materials that already exist, and we turn them into something that's ordered. We take a tree and we chop it down and we send it to the sawmill and the sawmill makes that wood into two by fours or two by sixes and, and planks and all these other things and then we build a tree house. We don't create anything, we change things. We mold them into something different. But God, when he speaks, he speaks his word is creating in power. And so the thing I'm trying to say here is that the things which are not seen are the things that are eternal. That's God himself. And God has placed himself inside of us. So he says here in chapter 5, verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We get upset when we break an arm, and no doubt it hurts. And we wonder if we're going to be able to use the thing again. But what God is saying through the pen of Paul here is that uh, we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, which to many of us, is that's the end all. Like, what am I going to do? He says here, we have a building from God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but forever I've thought, okay, God's going to build a building, and I'm going to live in it. And that is the truth in some case. In his physical kingdom, in the new Jerusalem, there will be this, this place where we dwell physically. And yet what he's saying here is this earthly tent that we've been given, this outward shell that you and I, we all spend all of our time dealing with, that thing can be destroyed and God's going to raise up a new one. He's going to give us a new body. 
He's going to give us a new dwelling place where our spirit will dwell and we'll be in the presence of the Lord forever. So even if that thing is destroyed, it's okay. Our hope is not in that thing. It shouldn't be. He says, For in this we groan, verse 2, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Now, he said back in chapter 4, Our light affliction, which is for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. All of us, in one way or another, we're ready for heaven. Whether we've lost a loved one, whether we've uh, gone through incredible amounts of pain through a a disease, whether it's just our bodies wearing out over time, those things, we hate them. They ail us, but they work for us. He says there in chapter 4, he says, These aff- this light and momentary affliction is working for us. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I experience affliction in any way, shape, or form, whether it's mild or great, I'm like, this thing is against me. Lord, what in the world? How can you allow this thing? But notice what it says there. It's working for us. Now, if God is for us, who or what can be against us? That's what it says in Romans chapter 8, right? What can be against us? Well, cancer can't. No. In the Christian life, and don't get me wrong, I'm not making light of cancer or anything to do with disease or death. Uh, I've seen a lot of people go through it recently, and it is destructive. It's painful. It's ridiculous, the things that cancer does. And I always ask the question, why does God allow cancer? And I felt like the Lord told me one day, one of the reasons that he allows cancer is because... (laughs) It's a very physical way that we can see what sin does to us. It destroys us. Sin is spiritual cancer. And so we have a picture for that. Unfortunately, that all of us, I'm sure, in some way or another have been touched by personally. But what I'm saying is that in the Christian life, it's working for us. It helps us to look forward to heaven, but it also will help us to be able to enjoy heaven all the more. To be in the presence of God. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more worry, no more shame. I don't know about you guys, but I look forward to that. No more babies crying at 3 a.m. You know, like, you know. There's that too, right? The things that just clog our days, and because of them we feel like, I wish I had more time with the Lord. And I, there are days where I wake up and it seems like Judah is like, 5 a.m., dad's going to be up, feed me! And he starts crying. And I'm like, I only got an hour to spend time with Jesus. How can I spend time with Jesus while this kid's crying? And the Lord's like, this affliction, if you want to call it that, Mingi, it's working for you, a far more eternal weight of glory. You'll have all the time you want in eternity to spend with me. I'm proud that you want to spend time with me, but don't let it get in the way of you loving the child that I've given you. They need a father who loves them and feeds them and does all these things. And so all these things drive us to want to know the Lord and be in heaven with him. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Because the clothing that we have right now is failing and wearing out. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. So he's saying there, if indeed we've been clothed with the righteousness of God. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, 
We kind of like it here, right? <laughs> Lord, I want to go to heaven, but not yet, right? Uh, Philippians chapter 1, Paul struggled with this same thing, and he expressed to them, he says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I've been given this life, and this life that I now live is the life that I live according to the, to the Son. I've been freed from bondage and sin, and so death no longer has dominion over me. But it's no longer Mike Mingy that reigns in me. It's Christ who lives because Mike Mingy's dead and gone. Can that be said of you? To, to live is Christ. Can you say, my life is about Jesus and not about me? That, that will be a struggle until the day we die because though in spiritually, sometimes we're like, yes, I'm all for Jesus. But if people, is, especially those that are closest to us, they'll look at us and go, really? I, I see a little bit of that, but I, don't, I can't say that you're completely sold out if they were being honest. Those people that are close to you that'll say that, by the way, you need them because they'll keep you humble. But he says, to die is gain because I get to be with the Lord. I don't have to fight the, the weak flesh that I'm in. Now, Paul had quite a few ailments. He had a leaky eye, many believe. He had a hooked nose. He wasn't even good looking. You know, he, he had all kinds of problems physically. He even talks about this thorn in the flesh, I think towards the end of this book. He said, Lord, remove this thing from me. I want to live for you. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. And so... Paul knew what it was like to experience physical ailment. But he says in verse uh, 4, For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality, or the ability to die, may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. There's this belief, there's this unshakable faith within us. That's the Holy Spirit reminding you day by day, this isn't it. It's not over after death. He's the Spirit that we've been given as a guarantee. A guarantee is like a seal. In the days of Paul, they would send a, a package, and it, would, it wouldn't be a 50 whatever, $800, you know, it wouldn't be a stamp with a certification and insurance. It would be the seal by the king himself, by the authority Bam, if you mess with this package, you're messing with the, the royal throne. So it would guarantee that it would make it to its destination. We've been sealed by the king who has dominion over all kingdoms by his Holy Spirit. Not just a seal, but his seal is himself living in us. And he guarantees that we will arrive at our final destination. No matter what we experience along the journey, at the very most, he's put it into our lives, and at the very least, he's allowed it into our lives so that we will be prepared for his glory. So, verse 6, we are always confident. How many of you guys are in here, don't raise your hand, are always confident? Me neither. But what Paul says as believers, if we'll put our hope in these facts that we've just read, we should always be confident. Paul says, I'm always confident Knowing that we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Absent from the Lord meaning one day we will be present with him. He says, we are always confident knowing this, that while we are at home in the body, we are present from, excuse me, absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body 
and to be present with the Lord. The same thing I read from Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It really, for the believer, to be alive is the best thing ever because we have a relationship with the Lord that anchors us, that keeps us from being shaken, gives us a, a hope, gives us a purpose. But to die is even better because even though the world, to die is the worst thing that can happen, to us, it's the fulfillment of all that we've hoped for. The evidence of things that we've not yet seen. You know, you guys remember Doubting Thomas. Thomas was, everybody calls him Doubting Thomas. The Bible doesn't call him that. But Thomas was one of the men who walked with Jesus while he was alive. And Jesus was killed, he was buried, and the disciples came back and they're like, hey, we saw the risen Jesus, he hasn't died. He's risen from the dead. And Thomas was like, look, unless I can see the wounds, touch them, I'm not, I don't believe it. So Jesus very graciously walks through the wall, appears to Thomas and says, here I am. You want to touch him? Go for it. Talk about it. Don't just talk about it. Touch him. Thomas said, no. I, sorry, Lord, I believe. He says, blessed are those who believe and have yet not seen. There's a reward. There's a blessing involved in, in, for us who have believed even though we haven't seen. That's faith. Believing in something that you haven't seen. Now, at the same time, there's evidence for the things that the Bible proclaims are true. And so we get to see, but it takes trust. Trust in the one who is promised. And so, Paul continues. He says, We're confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, anytime a verse says therefore, always look at the verses before it so to know what this verse is there for. So therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Jesus, to him. Whether we're present in his presence, we're going to want to please him. But we need to also have this heart to please the Lord when he's not palpably expressing himself to us. Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, there are many Christians walking around, or people that proclaim to be believers, that say, hey, God knows my heart, I'm just doing what I do. As if, hey, I got my ticket punched to heaven, so now I'm going to keep living like I was. The Bible does not teach that that's okay. The Bible also doesn't say, hey, God's going to take away his salvation from you. But it also says that we will be rewarded according to the deeds that you and I have done in the flesh. That this life is a place where we prove what we trust in. He says, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not the white throne judgment that unbelievers go before, where Jesus looks at them, the righteous judge, and all of his glory and says, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. This is a judgment. It's like an award ceremony. And we get awarded for the good or the bad that we did. And so, do you want first place or 80th place? Now, we're not all about, hey, I'm better than you. That's not the point. But the point is, is that we get awards or rewards for how we live this life of faith. Now, the interesting thing is that God saves us by grace, through faith, lest anyone should boast that they earned it. And so we didn't do anything to grasp it or earn it. 
He gives us the faith to believe in him. He gives us the faith to continue and to serve him. And by doing so, bring glory to God. And then he rewards us for all that he did. We get to be a part of that. He does it all, and yet we get rewarded. And the beauty of it is not so much how many trophies we'll have in heaven. The beauty of it is, number one, when we get to be in his presence, we'll have less to be ashamed for, hopefully, if we've lived to please him, but also when we get those rewards. It won't be like the end of the school year where you get all these certificates and awards, and you're like, hey, mom, check out what I did. It'll be one of those where we'll have all these crowns, these rewards, and we'll know that it wasn't us, and when we see Jesus, we'll have something to give him, recognizing that he did it all. Here you go, Lord. You're so good. You know, I, I love that song by Mercy Me, I Can Only Imagine. Because in that song, I, I have struggled. As I listen to that song, I do. I, I get taken right into the throne room of God, and I try to imagine, what will I do? What will it be like? What will I respond to his presence? Will I stand up in his presence and, and say, thank you, Lord? Or will I just in awe hit the floor and not say a word? Will I sing for him? And I've, at one point or another, I've said each one of them, no, I'll definitely do that. Or I'll definitely do that. But the reality is I have no idea what I'm going to do. I'm really hoping I don't say anything because I'm going to say something foolish. You know, I'm going to be like Peter. Lord, it's great that we're here on Mount Transfiguration. Let us build you a tabernacle for Elijah and Moses. You know, I don't think it's going to be that at all. I think I'm going to sit there and go, wow. Why would you save me? Why would you do anything for me? Why would you talk to me? All these things I've done. And I believe that he's going to wipe away the tears because we're going to remember in his presence, in that moment, before he tells us to stop it, we're going to remember all the things that we did that were a disgrace and a shame. A shame not only to our families and everything, but, but to him. He saw it all. And he's going to say, hey, you can wipe away those tears. He's going to say, enter into the joy of your Lord, good and faithful servant. And I think there's going to be a lot of weeping, <laughs> tears of joy. You know, I'm not a crier, but I'm about to well up just thinking about it. And so we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men there should be a fear of the Lord that causes us to go, Lord, thank you. What do you want me to do? We persuade men. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. He says, look at my life. I'm living in the light of the presence of the Lord. You want to judge me? I don't care. Because Jesus' judgment is going to be way worse than yours if I'm not faithful. He says, knowing that fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So the last part of the chapter, and we're going to kind of go over it bird's eye view, is basically now that we've been saved, now that we've lived in the light of this hope, knowing that we will be judged for what we do, what are we going to do with this time God's given us? Paul says we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. We've been brought near. We've been brought back in a relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, his own death on the cross. And now that we've been offered that gift and we realize we don't deserve it, what are we going to do with this life we've been freed up to live? He says, we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. Just as Jesus has brought us near to the Father by his death, 
so we also follow in, in Paul's footsteps. We want to go out and, and tell people you can be reconciled. This relationship that God's offered to you, it's for you too. He's offered it to you. It's free. He paid it all. Be reconciled. He wants a relationship with you so badly that he gave his most prized possession, his only son. Not so that we could have him to talk to and get good advice, so that he would die for us. He died. All you got to do is to receive him and accept the life and the gift of the resurrection he's offered you. So he says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, verse 12, but we give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart, the outward versus the inward. All the Pharisees, that was their issue. Outwardly, they were whitewashed tombs. They looked beautiful. They had all the right clothing. They said all the right things. They prayed, all of it to be seen. And yet, God said, you guys, Jesus said to them, he said, you're whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, you're all cleansed and perfect. But inwardly, you're just dead men's bones, dead men walking. You got no life in you. You're going to be twice the sons of hell that anyone else will be. For we are beside ourselves, he says there in verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If you think we're crazy, it's for the Lord. Don't worry about it. He says, or if we are of sound mind, then it's for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. Their impetus for serving the Lord and for sharing the gospel, Paul says, what compels me to do what I do, even though people hate me and try to stone me and I've been shipwrecked and all these other things outwardly that have happened to me, what compels me to keep going is the love of Christ. We have to make sure we make the distinction here. The love of Christ makes me keep going. It's not my love for Christ, which many people will say, I love Jesus, so I do this. But what Paul's saying here is the reason I'm unshaken is because Jesus loved me, so I do this. See, my love for Christ comes and goes. It becomes a feeling. It becomes an emotion. It becomes something that's not always there. Because I love other things too. And they rob me of my capacity to love Christ. But if it's the love of Christ, if it's what he's done for you that compels you, here's the fact. His love doesn't change. Therefore, what compels you won't change and you will not slow down. He says, it's the love of Christ that compels me, us, because we judge thus. Here's the reason. If one died for all, meaning Jesus, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So from the very pen of Paul, we get this idea of living for ourselves is not biblical. It's against God. If we call ourselves of G, uh, disciples of Jesus, then if we're living for ourselves, we're living a lie. Jesus himself, we read the verse last week, said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me the Father. So we, in the same way, we imitate that. We do it. We, we decide, hey, Jesus loved me enough to die for me, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but instead live for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, it's like he's making a proclamation. Therefore, from now on, 
We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So the question is, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That's not a question. That's a statement. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. That's the facts. This is what we know. So if someone you know says, hey, I'm in Christ, and they're no different than they were before they became or said they were in Christ, then they're, they're probably not in Christ. Because Jesus catches you, but he always cleans you. He cleans every fish that he catches. So if you're a new creation in Christ, and you're not at least changing as God's changing you, then maybe you're not in Christ. Maybe you're only fooling yourselves because you won't fool anybody else. We can see the difference. Now let's make that personal instead of focusing outwardly. (laughs) Are you different than you were before you became a Christian? Has your life changed? Has it been transformed? Romans chapter 12, uh, Paul writes there, he says, uh, Therefore I beg of you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before the Lord which is your reasonable service. He says, don't any longer be conformed into the image that this world will press you into, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's, that phrase, be transformed, is not be transformed moment, in this moment and it's all done. It's be being transformed. Let God change you. And as, you change, as he changes you, what you'll find is you won't be the same cat you were before Christ. But then he's also saying to those who are in the Corinthian church, he's saying, hey, look, if someone's in Christ, they're a new creation. Don't hold that past against them. They've got a new beginning and God's changing that stuff. And generational sin and the the past habits and temptations, they're still there. But God's going to transform them, encourage them, give them an attaboy, bless them, tell them to keep going, whatever it takes inspire them. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. There's that death that we symbolize in baptism. We've died to ourselves and we've been brought back to newness of life in Christ. He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Verse 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, he explains what that means. I like this about Paul. He gets a little wordy, but he does define his terms. He says, Christ has given us this ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing, or that's an accounting term that means depositing, not imputing... um, their trespasses or their sins to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, here's the linchpin. Here's the summary. In light of all that we've just went over, he says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You and I are his ambassadors. I like how we said it at a cowboy church. We're riding his brand. We've got the brand of Jesus on our hindquarters. We're sealed. 
Our, our destiny is purchased for us. It, we're all that will ever be in Christ, and yet he's left here, left us here for the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are his ambassadors. We represent him in all that we do. Whether it's waking up at 3 a.m. to feed a bottle, because I can do that, and I can do it wrong. I can misrepresent the Lord in my own house. Whether it's uh, telling my kid, hey, you need to stop yelling at your mom. I got to do that, but I got to do that representing Christ. Whether it's the way that you work at your job, or the way that you speak to your children, or the way that you treat those who treat you wrong. All of those things, and the list goes on. I'm not limiting it. I'm just saying everything that you do, you are an ambassador for Christ. That's what Paul's telling you. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He's made us God's righteousness. I heard it said this way, we are trophies of his grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, grace, given to us, should transform us so that when people see us, they should see that God is glorious because he's making us glorious, transforming us from glory to glory. And we've been given this ministry not only to tell others they need to turn from their sin and follow Christ, but also to do it ourselves. And through that, God will be made famous. No one else does that. People throw away broken things. God picks them up and makes them new. Do you know that? We take something that's old and worn out and we go, this isn't useful anymore. And that's how God builds his kingdom. It's a rags to riches. It's a, it's a what do they call that? A home makeover, a 180, a flip the house thing. You know, they, God's basically said, you know what? That house has been for sale for like 20 years and it is, it's falling apart. Um, he doesn't buy the house and bulldoze it. He buys it and he renovates it. He gives it a completely new veneer inside first and as it takes place, then outside. I love that. God's so good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing.